Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians from around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of experience among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Reed Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. It is heat index of 108 in Mississippi right now. Are you, can you please just tell me what it's like in Washington right now? Um, the high for today shall be 68 degrees. It's just. The low is 50. (laughs) You wear a light jacket. You can go for a run and not feel like you're going to melt. Uh, it's a wonderful environment for growing crisp apples. Uh, the birds <laughs> sing. The sun shines. <laughs> oh, my God. Becky has been instead, because it's too hot to go to the dog park lately. So mm-hmm. Becky has just been taking the dogs into the backyard and spraying them down with a hose. Oh, gosh. And you're like, <laughs> me next. <laughs> For real. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so happy for you. And, you know, I'm fine with it because come February, it's going to be my turn to bragola. So that is like... very true. <laughs> and listen, Pullman, it's all hills. Actually, the whole town is constructed of four hills, and the hills have little hills. <laughs> and I remember. At my interview, being driven around town, nothing plowed, and just like fishtailing our way through this town slide and just being like, oh my gosh, and like, how do you drive here? It's You're going to have to trade in your Prius for some four-wheel drive. I see hills. That's what they said. They go, you need four-wheel drive and you need snow tires. And I was like, what? Aren't those expensive? Uh Yes. I remember living in when we lived in Wisconsin and uh, somebody gave me the tip that you keep kitty litter in your car so that if you need to like pull out of a parking lot, you can just sprinkle some kitty litter behind your tires and then you can get out. I'm just going to send that tip to you. Okay. Well, (laughs) yes, you shall have the last laugh in February. (laughs) Oh, so you came up with a fantastic dish topic. Would you please enlighten our sweet, lovely listeners here of what we're going to talk about today? Yes, I was thinking about, you know, the academic year is upon us. We will be starting soon if we have not started already. And with COVID-19, unfortunately, continuing to be an issue, those of us who teach and play professionally are having to be flexible and malleable and adaptable. Mm. And as a teacher, I am very familiar with the snarkiest of students. I may or may not have been one myself at one time going, when am I ever going to use this? (laughs) (laughs) That does not sound familiar to me at all. I've never said that in my life. And so just this idea that our jobs do sometimes ask us or require us to learn and do things that we would never think we would actually have to do. So the dish topic today is things you've had to do as 
your life as a musician that you never thought would have been expected of you? <laughs> I'm going to out myself with mine. Are you ready? Yes. Sight reading. Oh. I used to be not a great sight reader. And since you're pulled in so many different directions as a professional musician, like your preparation time is so much less than I ever thought it would be. So I have actually gotten a lot better at sight reading and like moving my eyes faster on the page. I remember Benjamin saying, you have to learn music so quickly when you are a professional that he started to learn to get music to a professional level in an amount of time that as a student, he would have never been able to comprehend. Oh, a hundred percent. And you start to recognize patterns way more and like the amount of music that you're just playing through and you're just like devouring all this repertoire, you just start to notice like, oh, this usually follows that. And, you know, it's like this subconscious expectation that is most of the time what happens. Mm -hmm. So everything is less of a surprise, even though you have like one sixteenth of the preparation time that would have been acceptable mm -hmm. <laughs> when you were a student. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. I think mine would be, as I look over the course of my career, you know, I started off doing adjunct teaching and having part-time work. And when you're in that situation, the more credits that you teach, the more money you have. And mm -hmm. so it's a life of saying yes. More, more, more. <laughs> more, more, more. And yes, yes, yes. And yeah. the classes that I ended up teaching, it's like that joke about actors being like, yeah, my resume says I can do downhill skiing. I can, and, uh, I can do acrobatics on the top of a running horse. That's, absolutely. And that is within my skill set. Yes. <laughs> I have taught like the world music courses. If you would yeah. have looked at like 25-year-old me and said, you will teach South Indian Carnatic music and <laughs> Ghanaian drum ensembles, I would have been like, what? I don't know what those are. <laughs> I quit. And guess what? <laughs> Some department chair is like, hey, we'll give you three credits to like teach about this thing. And you go, I know all about that thing. I can, I am absolutely qualified to do that. Yes. yes. I will spend my you. summer figuring it out <laughs> and uh, I'm teaching this class because all I wanted to do is teach a bassoon. And if, you know, teaching these other classes would make it so I could do that, then uh, yeah. So yeah, I've taught uh, non-Western music, every level of theory, every level of music history, the oboe. <laughs> the ultimate. There was a class at a, I taught at a community college in my doctorate in Iowa City, and there was a class like Encounters in Humanities, and music was like one part of it, but also like we looked at art and dissected poetry, and <laughs> I was like, sure, it's time to read Virginia Woolf. Who's he? I mean, uh, <laughs> figured out. <laughs> Never heard of him. <laughs> Credit to Dan Schwartz for that joke. That is all Dan Schwartz. <laughs> no, but like I teach a writing about music class to master's students. Do I have an English degree? No, I do not. Can I read the Strunk in White and the Bellman book? Absolutely. Yes, I can. So that's what we're doing. Absolutely. So the mm -hmm. class, in order to, if you're like, I want to teach the oboe, I want to teach the bassoon, uh, God bless you if you start off in a job where that's all you have to do. Mm -hmm. You may acquire some classes in the process of building that you did not think you would ever teach. So when you're in your theory class and you're like, <laughs> when am I ever going to have to resolve a German augmented six, professor? It's like, well, you might have to for three credits to pay for your top ramen when you are 28. So, yes, I, yes please. I would love to teach that. 14th section of music appreciation. Oh, girl, don't even get me started on music appreciation. Okay. So we asked our listeners <laughs> about theirs and Lee Munoz, shout out Lee, said being able to MacGyver almost anything to fix a broken contra. And I'll just say instrument repair in general. Listen. That is, they... You're minding your business. Knock, knock, knock. Dr. Wilson. And then it's just like, there. what once was an instrument is like in 18 parts. 
they have a concert in five seconds and they're looking at you like, help me, what's wrong with my instrument? It's like, what do you mean? Oh, let me get or out like my crystal ball and figure out what's wrong with your instrument. Did you do anything to this? No. Oh, no, I just opened the case and it just happened. It, it was just a like that. And then or you like, like see them with their friends and they're like crashing into the wall and it's like, okay. Or it's like when someone's like, Dr. Countess, I think there might be something wrong with my read. And then you look at it and it's like split down the middle and like folded in half. I'm like, yeah, there might be something wrong with this read. Well, this read is covered in so much mold that it looks like it was made out of grenadilla. So. <laughs> you have moss growing from the inside of your reed. Oh. <laughs> oh my goodness. So Maria sent in small talk slash socializing with people I barely know at one time slash regional gigs. That is so real. Uh, yeah, small talk in general. There are times that you're at donor events or alumni events and you are expected to smile and shake hands and kiss babies and that's part of the and gig. And it doesn't matter how much time you've been spending in a small room by yourself. You still have to speak to other people as if you didn't just crawl out of a cave. No, introvert. <laughs> Don't make me talk. <laughs> Uh, oh, this is one that we both can uh, relate to. Olivia says business tax declaration, a must do, which unfortunately isn't near as fun as playing music. Yeah, the tax aspect. Uh, when we started this podcast, we. No. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> taxes. My eyes immediately glazed over the moment you said the word taxes. It's what. What? Thank God for Chris Wilson. That's all uh, I'll say about that. Yeah, our tax broker, Christopher Wilson, shout out. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, similarly, Kika says fundraising, which is another yes. all the financial part. Yes. All that is a tricky, tricky little business fundraising. Just give me money. Don't make me deal <laughs> with the money, please. Anne sent in helping students make reads online and walking students through oboe adjustments online. This whole online thing. I mean, that's probably what came to most people's minds. In, COVID stuff. Yeah, yeah the, the COVID stuff, which is interesting. It's perfect because Linda Beth's interview, which you're all about to listen to, she breaks down read instruction online yeah. through Zoom and has some great uh, recommendations as soon as her... Uh, interview was over. I got online and bought a USB dot cam. Yep. And I'm super excited about that. Yeah, I think we're just gonna <laughs> we're just gonna have to cannonball into those technology waters. <laughs> we also got a submission from Raymond, uh, who said flutter tonguing a scale, which was complete oboe hell for three months. But guess what? He can do it now. Yeah, extended techniques. I did not think, Hello. I was like, circular breathe. When am I ever going to need that? I'm not an oboist having to play Strauss. <laughs> and then I needed it. Now I have it. <laughs> that's a huge, that's a huge accomplishment is being able to flutter tongue on a double read, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. Double tongue, flutter tongue. Circular breathing. Everything. It's hardest for us, guys. We have the hardest We have it the worst. Yeah, yeah, everyone else's life is easy and ours are hard. Dylan has some good points. Grant writing, coding websites, audio recording technology, all of those things that we just don't necessarily think about that are such important skills. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, Dylan, now that you have those skills, maybe you can do, do some of them for us. <laughs> yes. Sharing is caring. <laughs> Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B flat key. 
all are maintained by OBO-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Linda Beth Binkley, Associate Professor of Oboe at Central Michigan University. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you. Can you start off by telling our listeners a bit about how you came to play the oboe? How'd you get started? Oh, gosh. My students know this story. Uh, it's a sad story, actually. Oh. I wanted to play the flute. <laughs> Secret, secretly wanted to play the flute. And my parents had gone to meet with the band director at, you know, in the sixth grade to discuss what instrument I should play. And I apparently scored very well on the aptitude test. And then the band director said to them, what kind of personality does she have? Is she determined? Is she stubborn? Does she see things through? And they were like, oh, yes, 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 yes. Well, then she should play the oboe. <laughs> my parents were like, what's an oboe? <laughs> and he said, well, look, if she's good at it, she'll get a scholarship to college. And they were like, sold. So they came home and told me that I was going to play the oboe. And I was, oh, they didn't ask you. Oh, no, they did not ask me. <laughs> Heck no. They were like, you're going to play the oboe. And I didn't even know what an oboe was. And I vividly remember going to the Encyclopedia Britannica, because we didn't have the internet in those days, sure. and pulling down the O volume <laughs> and opening it up and going, oh, it looks like the clarion, clarinet. I can carry it on the bus. It's small. So, okay, I'll play the oboe. <laughs> so my requirement apparently for an instrument was that it had to be small and portable. And if it was, then that's okay. So that's kind of how I came to the oboe. My parents made me do it. Um, I didn't exactly like it when I started. It took me a long time to learn to love it. Um, but now, of course, I can't imagine playing anything else. Well, Galit originally wanted to play the double bass and I did says her parents you were did. mean for not letting her and I say her parents were nice for not letting her because <laughs> the double bass is a life of inconvenience so you had it yes from, from the beginning you have, you'd have to have a big car I mean come on <laughs> yeah, <for real>. <laughs> <laughs> oh the regret <laughs> I know, right? Well, you want to know what the other dark day was? This is true, a true story. And I'm sure other oboe players will identify with this. So, you know, the dark day was you're not, you know, you're not going to play the flute. You're going to have to play the oboe. They started me with lessons right away um, with Roger Reem, who was teaching at Central Michigan University at the time, which was great. Beautiful player, beautiful sound. And he, he made reads for me. I mean, you know, he provided me with reads and I thought this is great. And then when I was a, End of my eighth grade year, he said, okay, you're going to have to learn how to make reads. I was like, what? I did not know that was a thing. I did not know anything about it. And he sat me down, showed me how to do it, told me to get the J Light book and the read making kit from Forrest's. And that over the summer, that was my job was to learn how to make reads. And I, I still remember the first read I tried to tie and the thread snapping and the cane flying and going, this is, this is, I'm not doing this for the rest of my life. <laughs> And, and here we are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You know. So funny when what I think about it. What a formative memory. Yeah. I mean, it's a vivid memory of being like, what? <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to sound like you for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you a lot of follow-up questions about that later. 
But for now, I would love to know um, what made you decide to major in music in college? Um, What path did you take uh, on your way to becoming a professional oboist? Sure. Okay. So I think... I think the best way to explain that is I fell in love with the sound of the instrument and specifically fell in love with my teacher's sound. He was a Mac student and just a beautiful player. And I really wanted to sound like that. And I thought what he could do expressively on the instrument was like amazing. But truthfully, secretly inside, I thought to myself, I'm not going to become an oboist. I mean, that's just not going to happen. Like that's like a one in a million thing. But I knew I was a good teacher. So I thought, well, I can... I can combine both and I will do music education and study and become band director. That was my original plan. And then about middle of my sophomore year, I couldn't shut off the voice in my head that kept wanting to push me more towards orchestral playing and taking auditions and really learning how to do that. And so um, I secretly wanted to be an orchestral oboist and I shared that secret desire with my teacher (laughs) Who then said, no. <laughs> oh! <laughs> know, right? But to his credit, and if, and if Roger, if you ever listen to this, please know that this is uh, you know, another one of those vivid memories in my head. He said, no. He goes, you, you can, I'm going to prepare you like you're going to become an orchestral player. And I'm going to you know, give you the skills and study the repertoire and we're going to do that. But behind that screen, no one's going to care what your degree says. And if that doesn't work out for you, having the music ed degree will be a good fallback plan. So he was right. But I remember that initial no still like resounded in my head for like years. <laughs> no, um, no, no, no. <laughs> exactly. It's like, what? But he was right. And I have never, ever regretted studying music ed as an undergrad because I have used those skills hands down in all the teaching that I've done since then. And when I was in the orchestra and doing master classes and quintet shows and all those skills kind of came together in a really beautiful way. So that's kind of how it happened for me. What happened next after your undergraduate? Oh, (laughs) after my undergrad, I thought, okay, I'm going to follow this desire. I'm going to do the orchestral thing, but money was an issue. So I needed to go someplace that had a good assistantship. And that wound up being the university of Colorado at Boulder. And the great thing about that experience was, you know, I had studied with Roger from the time I was a little sixth grader until I finished my undergrad. I mean, he knows me almost as long as my parents. And so I was very firmly um, schooled in the Mac school and this dark, beautiful sound. And when I went to Boulder, Colorado, I went to a Colorado symphony concert which happened to be the very first season where Peter Cooper was principal oboe. And I sat in the audience and heard some of the most incredible playing I'd ever heard in my life, like expressive and beautiful color. And it was like a sound and an approach to the instrument that I had not been exposed to before. And I thought, Oh God, I really want to be able to do that. That's just was so inspiring. And so I um, stalked him and (laughs) waited outside the Concert door. I'm sure I don't I don't know that he remembers this but I remember like the second that concert was, was over I was like I gotta find the concert you know I gotta find the backstage door and so I did I waited there until he came out and I grabbed his arm and I'm like do you teach private lessons <laughs> was he like security I, know, right? I mean I did introduce myself beforehand but but he's like sure and so then I started to study with him during my master's and with him I was very you know, open about the fact I really wanted to do this orchestral thing. And uh, that was an amazing two years I spent, you know, learning from him. And then went from there and wound up winning an English horn job in Tucson. And that's another totally different story. But (laughs) so I ended up going down to Tucson, playing English horn, and then coming back to Denver and playing acting second oboe for a year with him, then going back down to Tucson, where I eventually won the principal oboe job and started my doctorate at the University of Arizona, again, because that seemed like it might be a smart idea um, just to have that. I knew that I was eventually going to end up teaching at a college setting because I'm I'm a a teacher. I just know that that's very much part of who I am. Um, So I got the doctorate there, studied with Neil Tapman, which was fabulous. Um, And then 
and about was this may of 2009 got a phone call from the director of bands here at the time who said hey our oboist has our oboe professor has taken another job and we need somebody to fill in for a year would you be interested and is that something that you'd consider doing he said you'd have to apply you know put your application in and go through the process but um what do you think and so i hung up the phone and i thought well maybe it's time so <laughs> I applied, got the job, took a leave from the orchestra because I wasn't quite sure I was ready to leave the orchestra and then decided to stay, you know, and really pursue college teaching um, and applied for the full-time position when it became available and they, they decided to keep me, which is good. Um, and here we are. Was that at all a compromise in your mind? You know, I feel like sometimes we buy into this idea of of two paths, you know, you kind of either go down one route or you don't, and you had been very attracted to the orchestral route was, but you said you were always interested in teaching. How did you think of your career and the way that it would shape up? Were you kind of open or particularly invested? Was there a shift? I'd love to hear about your mentality in terms of this journey. I think, well, there were a couple things that, that happened that were external forces that definitely influenced that, assist, that decision. One was um, the fact that my mother was in the, <clears throat> at the final stages of a terminal illness. And so it, that it sort of felt like, okay, this would be a time where I could go back and be with her mm -hmm. um, and spend time with her. So that was something that I factored in. There was also the idea of wanting to try something new, you know, mm -hmm. and the opportunities that are available to you as a uh, university professor are things that I wasn't able to do as when I was in the Tucson Symphony. Um, the Tucson Symphony was also a regional orchestra. And while I loved it, and I still miss it, <laughs> it was not growing at a rate where the salary was going to, you know, keep up with me becoming an adult. <laughs> so to speak, you know? Um, so there were a lot of, I'd say, probably like grown up considerations that were kind of coming into play when I was making that decision. So you have um, mentioned that you, once you graduated eighth grade, mm -hmm. you were forced to <laughs> learn how to make wreaths from the daylight book yes. <laughs> by yourself yes. over the summer. Yeah. Um, you went from Michigan to Colorado to Tucson to Colorado to Tucson to Michigan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, you also have a fantastic um, Instagram account called Thin the Tip where you give wonderful read making advice, videos, problem solving, before and after <laughs> pictures. And I'm getting the feeling that it comes from hard won experience. <laughs> yes. <that laughs> this, would be true. this is a double read podcast. Um, I want to hear about your read making. Um, your perhaps what's important to you in your read making, your read making philosophy maybe um, and maybe even how you approach read-making pedagogy? Ah, that's a big question. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, all, it's all good. It's all good. Um, okay, let's start. I guess let's start at the beginning. So <laughs> for me, um, when I said I wanted to be an orchestral player, um, the read thing became like a huge huge deal for me because I learned very quickly that your reads had to had to respond when you needed them to respond and they have to play in tune they have to be consistent and um, when I left my undergrad while Roger was a great teacher and he was a great read maker he wasn't necessarily like he would tell me what I needed to do but then he would show me on my reads so I wasn't in many cases, I wasn't doing the work, right? And so when I went to Colorado from, you know, sea level to 5,000 feet above sea level, my reads wigged out, like 
I had no, I had no idea what to do, how to handle it, and why that J-Light method just wasn't working for me at $5,000 a week. Um, and so luckily, I did run into Peter, who helped me sort of figure that all out and how to, how to really listen to the cane and the vibrations and the crowing. And, and so I think through him, I started to really learn that if I if I stuck to basics, if I kept things very simple and really thought about how the reed vibrates from tip to back, I would have much more success instead of relying on a, a series of measurements <clears throat> and expectations that this is how you, a reed will always be. Um, and so because of that sort of approach to teaching, that like opened up worlds of success, I guess I would say for me, taught me so much. And so then when I got my principal job in Tucson and it was like, it was, it was incredibly stressful because it was something I always really wanted, but was terrified of. And now I really have to make sure my reads are right up there where they are or, you know, where they need to be. And so I, it was very stressful. I'm just going to put that way. And I swore that when I became a teacher, I would come up with a system or an approach so that my students and anyone else that I can help will not have that sense of anxiety or go through that, that kind of stress. Um, so that's sort of how this whole approach kind of evolved was really out of the desire to help other people not stress out about their reads, <laughs> you know? So I approach things by trying to dig down into the simplest um, simplest rule, which is always that the tip must vibrate first and everything else comes after that. And then learning how to interpret the crow so that you know where to scrape so that by understanding the crow, you can consistently build the reed the same sort of way each time, no matter what the cane's doing, no matter what altitude you're at or the humidity level. That's the premise. And then the thin the tip thing came out about because I was getting lazy. <laughs> I can't believe I am admitting this to the world of oval players, but I will. Jackie, cut this out. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, was, I was getting lazy and overwhelmed with my teaching schedule. And so I was experiencing like panic a week before a concert I was supposed to play because my reads weren't like, weren't coming together and because I hadn't been making them consistently. And I was like, I need to come up with a system or something that makes me feel accountable. Um, Cause apparently I can't do it myself. And so <laughs> But then the tip was sort of my answer to that because I was like, I have to post that every day I've done something with a read, it, whether it's tie it up or just scrape on the tip or make a tiny adjustment, but I had to like document it. And so that was, it really started as a way to help myself stay accountable. The side benefit of it, however, was taking all those pictures and figuring out how to take those pictures made me see the reads in a completely different way. And I was like, whoa, I didn't know I did that look at that, you know, that's uneven. Mm -hmm. I need to adjust that. And so that also helped, you know, has helped me. So that's why the thin the tip thing happened. And I'm really happy that it is helpful to people. I try to be really honest and not, not, um, you know, make things up. You guys see the real, the real deal, <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly, the, I don't feel like doing it kind of thing. <laughs> I was at your presentation about read pedagogy at IDRS in Georgia, where you laid out some strategies for making mm -hmm. read class engaging and creative. And I remember just being like, okay, this lady is on a whole nother level. She's not <laughs> surviving. She's thriving and, and therefore her That's right too. And so I'd love if you could maybe tell us about some of the creative things that you've brought into your read class in terms of your read making pedagogy. So teaching read making can be really challenging, especially when students aren't particularly self-motivated to do it because it's hard and it's overwhelming and they, they get frustrated quickly. And so I realized about a year or two in, I had to come up with some, some ways to make it more interesting and more fun and give them more ownership over the process. So uh, one of the things that we do 
one of the favorite things that we do is what I call the, the crow it out exercise where I pair them and only the person that has made the read gets to crow and the other person has to adjust it. And so they, they work together to diagnose the crow and then the person has to, you know, figure out if they can make the adjustment to, to make it better for the student. And that is so much fun to watch because you see them like puzzling things out. They all agree that if they wreck, if the, you know, the person scraping wrecks the read that they'll just pull another one out and start over. Um, and I encourage my students, believe it or not, to make a lot of mistakes. So every exercise that I kind of design is, I always say to them, doesn't matter if it, if you don't end up with a successful read because you're going to have, you are going to have learned something from that experience. Um, everything I've done, all the things I've designed have been to put the student more in control of the process so that they're learning from their mistakes. Um, another good one that I love to do is I call it the five minute read fix where I go into a practice room, which is next to one of our classrooms and rotate through the students every like five minutes. And during that five minutes, I will scrape on the read based on what they, what they tell me they think it needs. Whether I agree with it or whether I don't, if they crow on it and they're like, oh, it's too hard. So I'll, you know, lighten up the, the tip. I think they'll say, I think the tips too needs, needs more off of it. And I'll do that and then hand it back to them. Then they go test the read. They get in line, they do it. You know, we do this process over and over again, but I don't say anything other than just, you tell me what you want me to do so that I can do the fixing and then kind of show them how that structure or whatever imbalances in there, um, removed, fixed, adjusted, whatever you want to call it, will make the read better. Um, so that's a good one. I'm trying to think now I should have, I should have Wasn't all of Wasn't there them. something like a, like a relay race? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if you really want to stress out your students, definitely do this. Oh, yes, oh, please. Oh, yeah. This is fun. It's slightly crazy, but it is super fun. So you put them into teams and you elect like a team camp captain and their only job is to crow the read. And so they make the read in stages. Like one person's responsible for the rough scrape. One person's responsible for the getting the tip vibrating and balanced and then straight through to finishing. And we see which team can build the read the fastest and the best. And so arguments break out, discussions break out, you know, no, crow it again, no, crow slower, crow. Because <laughs> they're only confused the one person's crow, right? So they get very nitpicky about, you know, hearing people crow. Um, and I've done that exercise with like high school kids, you know, that, that towards the end of our read making camp, and they are able to like, make a read it may not sound that great but <laughs> but they get a read vibrating um so the relay race is fun um oh should i talk about flipgrid do you guys know about flip flipgrid Have talk you about used it flipgrid? yeah okay so particularly um i think now because of who knows what's going to happen in the fall when classes go back if we go back um one of the things that i've found to be really helpful is using a, it's a Microsoft product called Flipgrid, where students, it's an app on their phones, and they can take a quick video of themselves crowing or playing, discuss the read, and they send it to me, and then I can evaluate it, give them helpful hints, or I can set it up so that it's public for the entire studio to see, and they, and say, okay, you all have to solve each other's read problems, um, and so they'll, have comments and shoot videos to each other. And it sort of just takes place in this very um, safe, secure environment because it's only accessible to the students that you give accessibility to. So like they have to have a CMU email address to even go into this, this thing. Um, they like Flipgrid. That's been really helpful um, in terms of if they're sitting in the practice room and it's like 10 o'clock at night and they've got a read question and they don't know what to do, they'll just do a quick flip grid and send it to me. And then the next morning I'll open it up and quick, give them some video feedback back and they can fix that problem really quickly. So that's been one thing that's been particularly helpful. 
What tips do you have for double read teachers who are going to have to figure out how to teach read making on the internet? You know, we can't play on our students' reads. We can't scrape on our students' reads. We need to teach them and we need to help them, but you know, we can't touch them. So (laughs) what, what ideas do you have for present company? Your present company. So the first thing I would say, and there are, I, I, my, their names escape me at the moment. There are a couple of people that have put out some really good YouTube videos about this. Um, but the best thing I would recommend is to get a hand, uh, a hands-free holder for your phone or a USB document camera so that you have two, two cameras to work with. And what I do is I sign in on my phone and on the laptop. And then I could put the phone on my hands or on the read. Oh, that's a good idea. You know what I mean? And so if I'm giving them, they'll crow or then they'll play and I'll say, ah, it sounds to me like you need to do this. And then I can show them where on the read they should scrape, right? Um, the frustrating part that I have not quite figured out yet is on the iPhones that that have autofocus, sometimes that can be a bit of a pain in terms of, of getting it to settle. So the document camera, I think, is probably a, that might be a better solution. So I'm in the process of kind of updating that, trying it. But worst case scenario, the whole two camera thing with the phone, that is the way to go. The other thing that I, that I do is, and this is not going to surprise you at all, I have... <laughs> I have a new tutorial on how to take pictures of your oboe reads. Yay! <laughs> I know. I have to clean it up though, because I just just did it for the the camp that I teach at uh, at the University of Wisconsin Eau Claire. Um, but hands down, what has helped me the most with the virtual thing is making my students send me pictures of their reads, and I have specific views and angles that I want them to show me. So at least I can you know look at it they text them to me or they email them to me, I can look at those pictures and see kind of at least, you know, the imbalances and stuff that might be going awry. And then what's also cool about that is if you put those pictures into the power, into a PowerPoint and share your screen, you can show them what you're looking at and point out what you're seeing on their reads. Um, And then the other students see what you're showing them. And that really helps them recognize starting to recognize patterns and 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 fixes that way so the read picture thing i know it's not perfect i know it's hard to tell which blade is the thicker and the thinner but (laughs) it's better than nothing and um for me i've looked at enough reads that i can like pretty good at figuring out what's going on while we're talking to the read guru since you have had the specific experience of being dropped down in Boulder, Colorado. And <laughs> right now the plan is for all of us to do the same for uh, audience of our peers who yes. <laughs> you know, know what they're looking for in terms of sound. What advice, mm-hmm. you already gave um, great advice in terms of expectation and routine and, and listening to what the read is saying, but um, maybe what advice for high altitude read making and that traumatic experience yes um i would say and again this is just my experience so i'm sure there will people that'll be like ah no that's not right but whatever um (laughs) in my experience the higher you go in altitude the wider your shape has to be Mm. so a little bit more width will give more room for that air to kind of move through the reed, which will help keep it from wanting to close up and be sharp. Cause most of us will have trouble with the reed feeling tight and sharp. So I would, I would also say, don't expect to make a reed at sea level and finish it even at high altitude. I think you're better off to take your cane and your shape tip <laughs> and like tie it up and do it right from scratch when you get there uh, because it's always, I think it's always like kind of like playing roulette, Russian roulette with a read. It'll work really well for like maybe an hour. When you first get up there, you'll be like, oh, I'm going to be fine. It's going to be great. And then two or three hours later or the next morning, you will take that read out and it'll be like, mm-hmm, 
not gonna happen, not gonna work for you <laughs> because it's adjusted and it's settled. So the best success is always, I think, to make, you know, whatever part of the process, whether you're bassoon or oboe, you know, like I imagine if you're a bassoonist, take a blank, but then finish it there. Um, but wider shape, smaller diameter, tube cane also is a big one for oboe. So if you're used to using, you know, 10 and a half, take it down to 10. Um, when I lived in Boulder, I was using nine and a half to 10 diameter uh, tube cane. And that really helped because they just, they just don't vibrate the same way, you know, and you're kind of, yeah. So that's what I would recommend. Awesome. You are not only a fantastic teacher and read maker and player, but you're also a recording artist <laughs> and you've recently come out with your CD from earth to sky, the music of Jenny Brandon. Would you tell us about that project and how it came to fruition? Yes, I would be happy to talk about that. Um, that project came about because I met Jenny at a um, IDRS at the IDRS convention in Columbus, Georgia, and I was playing her Wildflower Trio, which I really, really liked. And so when I got home, I was looking for other pieces of repertoire of hers because I wanted to program something on my recital, and ran across her love songs piece for soprano and oboe. And we have a fabulous soprano on faculty at the time. Um, and we'd always wanted to do something together. So we're like, let's do this piece. And we fell in love with that piece. And then we both were like, you know, maybe we should record this. And so that sort of started the ball rolling. And, I, you know, I'm trying to think, why did I end up settling on just Jenny's music? It really had to be, a, it was about the fact that I felt like people didn't know her music enough, like, didn't understand the the variety of chamber works that she has available to her and you know in her writing in her compositions and so I wanted to put together a, a CD that would appeal to a lot of different people in the hopes that her music would now make it onto other programs whether it be a clarinet player a bassoonist a singer you know that has a has an oboist in there <laughs> in their arsenal of friends. Um, but it's, you know, it's about getting, particularly female composers, getting their music out there more, you know, getting it into the repertoire. So that's sort of why that whole thing came about. And then it was just tons of fun trying to put it together. <laughs> A lot of moving parts. Maybe not the smartest idea for your first CD to do, <laughs> do one. <laughs> A whole bunch of different people, but um, but it's fun and I'm I'm quite happy with it. And I really love the piece that she wrote for me on it, um, which is called Wood Song. Uh, that was really fun. I'd never worked with a composer before on anything, so that was a great experience. Could you tell us more about that experience of collaborating with a composer? And like, if we have any listeners who the idea kind of intrigues them, but they don't know exactly what it looked like, talk to us about that process collaboratively sure so jenny when when we were discussing repertoire and i was saying oh i'd like to put this on and that, and that on we needed a little bit more time in the cd and she said well why don't i write a piece for you and i said okay uh, <laughs> so let's write a four minute piece it turned out to be about seven but <laughs> four minute work okay so then she said well what do you want me to write it about and i was like i don't know i mean i'm not the composer I have no idea. And so she's like, okay, well, let me think about it. And she, she really likes my playing. And so she ran across this Sarah Teasdale poem and she said, what about this? This sounds like a, this sounds like a really good inspiring piece. And I love, love the poem too. I'm like, sure. That's great. It talks about a wood thrush. So I think I'm going to try to figure out a way to add these bird calls into the piece. I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. Okay. So she sends me um, Audubon recordings of wood thrush calls and says, you know, what can you emulate on the oboe? So we played around with some things I recorded and I sent back to her. And then I tease her about this one. So she sent me the first draft and it had the very first thing was the opening figure and then a flutter tongue pianist, like piano or pianist about was supposed to be light and delicate. And I was like, I don't think she really wants that. So I said, <laughs> I called her up, but I was like, um, Jenny, this is what the oboe sounds like when it flutters. I go, and she goes, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what it <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
I'm back there. I'm like, good. So, you know, it was this really kind of um, dynamic give and take. She'd send me something. I would be like, do you mean this? Is this the articulation you want? Um, if this is what you want, oboists will interpret what we're seeing one way. And this is not what you're telling us that you want. <laughs> If what I'm playing is what you want, you need to write it this way, <laughs> you know, especially with articulation. And she was really great about that. Um, there is one moment in the piece I, that I will take credit for. There's a, a moment where uh, the oboist has to go up to a high G. And that's my fault because she had originally written it going down to an E. And I said, Jenny, just feels like I'm at the top of this phrase and, and I have to keep going. I have to keep soaring. And she goes, I don't know. And I'm like, no, it'll be okay. People, you can, people can do it. <laughs> so yeah, sorry about the hygiene people, but it's worth <laughs> it. It's totally worth it. Cause when you really let go, it just feels so good. Um, but you know, Jenny was really great about being in communication and sharing and open to any ideas that I had. So I think you just have to find that composer that's really, really willing to collaborate with you and play to your strong, you know, to your strengths because um, that's what she definitely did in that piece. So, but I highly recommend it. It's great fun, really fun. Were you initially a little bit wary about asking her to change things? Yes. <laughs> because yeah. I know like when you get a piece of music, your first instinct is whether you commissioned it or not, is this is what it's supposed to be. I have to do this. So I'd love to get your advice on, you know, commissioning a composer and working with them on the piece. I think, I think the reason it worked well for us, and this would be in my advice to everybody else who does this, and that is to always approach it from, in, from the direction of asking the composer, what is it that you want to hear and playing examples. So it's not like I was saying, I was not saying this is, this is a writer. This isn't, you know, I don't think you want this. You know what I mean? I would always just be play what I, what I thought or what I see on the page and then ask her, is this what you were thinking? Because I kind of hear that maybe this might work, maybe, maybe better, maybe different. And she was always open to that, you know? So that idea of, treating it like, sure, here's what you're telling me by what I see on the page. This is how I would interpret it and how others might interpret it. Is that what you want? Mm -hmm. And, you know, most of the time, if it's compelling enough in how it's delivered musically, they will respond, I think. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in some cases, I think there's also a situation where I uh, just had to be like, listen, us diminuendoing on a low B flat to pianissimo, that's, that's probably not, not going to happen very well. <laughs> if you don't want it to go eh, at the end, you might want to consider bumping that up. And she was like she was comedy totally... night at the, you know, <laughs> laugh hut. <laughs> exactly. But here's the other thing. I think the flip side of that too is that I also was incredibly respectful. There were some conversations we had, where she had that we had, but she was like, no, that's not what I want. I want it this way. And then I was like, okay, I will figure out how to do what I need to do to make this happen for you, you know? So it's, it's that really cool sort of give and take. And as long as the composer is open to that, I think it's, it's a totally worthwhile experience for both people. What I always wanted to say is some people can do that, but I can't do that. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us about a favorite memory of a past performance that sticks out in your mind as special? Oh, wow. Yes. I was thinking about this just the other day because I was missing. I was, I got all teared up, you guys. I got all teared up watching Stars and Stripes being played on the lawn in Chicago. Did you guys see that YouTube video uh -huh. of the, of this little neighborhood thing? And I got all teared up over Stars and Stripes because I was like, when am I going to be able to do that? <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and so that made me think of this moment, and I think this is such an important moment for me because of the journey I had getting into the principal chair in Tucson, and when I finally was able to do it. But it was in the first season, and we did Shostakovich First Symphony, 
And that has, you know, one of the most gorgeous oboe solos ever, right? And we had a guest conductor there. And we finished that concert. And before he even turned around to the audience, he got off the podium and walked to me, walked over to me into my chair, shook my hand and had me stand up. And for me, that was like, you know, wow. (laughs) Because I do remember the moment of playing it and feeling my sound like that. I think what gets us going as an orchestral player is that moment when you hear your sound out in that hall and like just sailing over everything and realizing you have this, this control and this ability to express, you know, all this emotion. Um, And I had had a good read. (laughs) So I was able to just play and play freely. And then to have the conductor do that was it just was so affirming. It was like, okay, I made the right choice. I'm going to be okay. This person who doesn't know me from a hole in the wall thinks I did a good job. <laughs> I can do this, right? And so I think for me, that was that still stands out as one of the finer memories I have in the orchestra for sure. Now, enough feeling good about yourself. Now we want to know if there is a funny or embarrassing <gasps> story that you could tell us of something that happened on stage oh I have so many <laughs> you know I am fraught with comedy um okay I will tell this one because this one still keeps me up at night yeah it does like it's one of those moments that especially as a teacher you're like oh my god I can't believe I did this so um when I was doing my master's I was asked to play a like a like a concert, like a fundraising concert for the Boulder Bach Festival. So I was going to play these obligato arias that I didn't know. I mean, it was the first time learning them with faculty members from CU in this very intimate church setting. And the rehearsals had gone well, everything was going well. And I forgot to copy my page turn before the concert and practice with my page turns before the concert, right? But I, I copied it on my way to the concert and um, <laughs> neglected to put them in the right order. Ugh. So, you know, those things are de capo. And I just, I got them all, all like Ugh. discombobulated on my stand in the performance. And then I flipped and it was the wrong de capo for the wrong <laughs> aria. And I'm just doing this and back and this oh. and back. And, oh, it's awful. I mean, I was instantly red. I mean, it was the I wanted to crawl in a hole and die. And I just, it was awful. It was awful. It was awful. I love it. I apparently have page turn issues, which means I should start playing from an iPad. But then I think that's a whole other world of hurt for me. So this one happened fairly recently um, in front of my students, in front of faculty members. So we were doing a Powers Woodwind Quintet concert and we were playing the Poulenc Sextet. And it was after intermission and I thought that my part was on my stand and went out sat down got ready to start and I was like moving my music where's the pool link (laughs) I was like shoot shoot so I was like you guys I have to go get my music they were like one second get up very calmly walk backstage kick my feet off run down the hall into my office you know flip on the legs like where is it where is it found it run back throw my shoes back on calmly walk out (laughs) and my heart was just like and you know of course the whole audience is dying and laughing and the quintet was was laughing as well, but it was super embarrassing for me because I'm like, I'm the professor, right? I should have my music together and on the stand. Oh, oh, it's awful. It's just awful. And I'll never forget like playing that opening with that, you know, your heart, my heart was just racing and trying to be all calm. Oh, good times, good times. It's those human moments that really keep us humble. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In addition to um, making sure that their sheet music is always secure and ready to go, what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Wow, that's a big question. And I think, I think the, the 
best thing that I would say is it's really about preparation and consistency and taking the time and and taking the time to do things and learn things well and learn things correctly the first time around. And that is everything from how to give an A to playing your scales to, you know, learning how to use forked F or left-hand F and when. Um, but I think too much of a, too many times students want to play repertoire that's really hard and exciting. And, you know, they want to play the Strauss before they can really play a, a Barrett melody as beautifully and in tune and, you know, with gorgeous vibrato. And I mean, the thing that has always held me and I think it's why I've been successful is the fact that I took the time to learn Barrett and learn phrasing and learn how to play in tune. Um, so that when I get into those concert settings, those, those skills are there. I mean, that's, that's the root of everything. The rest of it's just icing, <laughs> you know, being able to play, you know, Tombo or La Scala. I practice my C major scale people. I did. <laughs> all kinds of tempos. (laughs) I mean, seriously. So, you know, it's being patient and and having time to get the skill set. And then it's also the second part of that is is to believe in yourself and and to believe that you have something to say and it's worth going through all this craziness of learning how to make reads and play your melodic minor scales and, you know, give a good A. Um, that you know it's it's worth it because you get to express all that good stuff you know and move people that's what i like to do i like to reach people through what i do linda beth thank you so much for joining us and giving us so generously an hour of your time it was a pleasure to talk to you on double read dish well you are welcome thank you again for having me this was great fun hope you enjoyed that episode don't forget to follow us on social media you can listen anywhere that you normally get your podcasts we would love if you would leave us a rating and review and if you have something to say to us you can write us at double dish at gmail.com galit who's coming up on the next if <laughs> you really threw me with the app anyway <laughs> we have Shiro, Monica Ellis, bassoonist of the Imani Winds. Super excited to share that one with all of you. Um, Jackie, time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads. On a doc cam. On a doc cam. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>